Welcome to Vincent Price's Laugh. Good evening, LB. Hey, Andrew. Good evening, everyone. Hey, everybody. Is there an echo, there an echo in, here? in here? No, if there was an echo, it would repeat exactly what you said. Then there there must be a, a ghost. Mm, no. Some sort of monster, apparition, witch. Are you calling me a witch? I didn't say that. I didn't say that at all. Okay. I mean, if you feel that way, you feel that way. But I ain't claiming. All right, tonight we're talking about a couple of short movies. And these short movies have sort of a through theme between both of them, even though neither are related. A sort of common thread, you might say? They both tackle something that could be considered a little bit of a taboo subject. And that subject is mental illness. I disagree that it's a taboo subject because it is a subject of many, many horror films. So many horror films say, is this happening in my mind? Am I going crazy? Is this not? Even films that masquerade, like Shutter Island, masquerades itself as a horror film, but it's just a drama about mental illness. I don't think it's taboo, but it is a very important theme anyway. Well, I was saying it was taboo because of back in the day, if you had someone who was mentally ill in your family, you didn't talk about it. Sure. Nobody talked about it. It was like black sheep, like swept under the rug. Okay. That kind of thing. So that's really what I meant. Okay, okay. But I know exactly what you're saying. Like, it's a very predominant theme in a lot of horror movies. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm with you there. Okay. Now, the first one is called Air. Like, oxygen. No, like, I'm inheriting. Oh, okay. I am the sun and the air. Of a shyness that is infinitely bold. I am the sun (laughs) of nothing (laughs) Right? I wish people could see your face yeah, right Yeah, I, I just have buck teeth when I'm doing that. <laughs> you looked like Jim Carrey singing more. Singing. No! But like, no! very, very subtly. No! Very subtle. It's the curse. <laughs> like a white, slightly funny guy curse. Yeah. You look like Jim Carrey. Right. So. Okay. This, so, I did not, I am not the heir of Jim Carrey or his comic stylings. In fact, this film is rather disturbing. So what you gave him, is it going to hurt him? I don't know how you hit it for so long. Must have been hell. It's really beautiful. Once you get used to it, once you start to recognize yourself. It was brought to our attention by the producer named Zach Green, and uh, he was interested in what we thought of the film. The production company is called Fatal Pictures, and this is the fourth short that they have released. This one came out in 2015 and is currently on the film festival circuit. I think right now it's showing in Australia, so it's making the rounds. It was written and directed by a guy named Richard Powell. It stars a couple of guys who might be known faces to people who watch a lot of horror movies or horror indie stuff. horror movies. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, a lot of indie, like really festival circuit only stuff. Yeah, Bill Oberst Jr. and Robert Nolan. All right, so let's let's get this out of the way first. This film was not what I expected at all. Nor I. I had in my mind because I, you know I did a little bit of reading about it first of all. I didn't do any reading. I only okay. looked at screenshots that I was sent. Right. So from the screenshots, this was just raw camera data. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it looked a little cheap. Well, I had read things 
things about it that put it in my mind that this was going to be the goriest, most grotesque, like just disgusting, disturbing, you know, because it's all practical effects, by the way. But I thought it was going to be like really over the top gross. Like trauma's grossest yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, it's not that. I mean, it does have gore. Well, it's not gore it's in, the, a, in the sense right. of, of bodies exploding yeah, in yeah, rib yeah, cages yeah. and brains and guts. It's gore in the sense of body horror, like a, yeah, like tentacles growing out of people's yeah, arms yeah, yeah. and stuff like this, and just weird drippy goo, goo, lots and lots yeah. of disgusting goo. Yeah. Now I'm saying lots and lots of disgusting goo. Now if you're re- reading this in a, a vague sort of review kind of way, you'll probably have the impression that you had mm-hmm. if I say lots and lots of disgusting goo. Even though there is lots and lots of disgusting goo in this, it's it's not that. It doesn't distract you from what the movie is doing, what the story is saying. I was really surprised at how well everything worked together. I, I too. And uh, it's a very challenging film as well. The film challenges your notions of what the topic is, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the topic, it's its a really, not in the worst way possible. This is not an insult. It's a very obvious metaphor. Yeah. Or analogy or something. Right, simile. right. And it challenges your sympathies, really. Yeah. Now, there are two major characters in the story, and they are the flip side of a coin, or how we perceive these two types of characters in real life. Right. How they're presented to us. Mm-hmm. The direct statement mentions the idea behind this is people who abuse children in any any sort of way sexually verbally physically emotionally emotionally we perceive them as monsters yeah because of what they do right this film presents the idea what if those people really were monsters not only that though there's one that has completely embraced himself as a monster and the other one is fighting it mm-hmm Mm-hmm. So it is the story of a father yeah. who seems kind of like he's involved in some kind of sketchy... You get the idea that he's sort of giving his son to a to a pedophile yeah. in a way. Like there's a scene in the beginning where the father's just emailing this guy back and forth and they're talking about a play date and it seems really like... Why are you calling it a play date? What are yeah. you... The language used is very suspect at yeah. the same time as being deliberately innocent sounding and thus suspect right the way the father types and deletes his words and then types his words again and deletes his words again and finally comes up with something to say he's pensive he's got anxiety about Mm -hmm. it now this is the sympathetic character yeah we see him struggle with is he or isn't he going to embrace the monster Mm -hmm. the deal is that the monster is already there he is already a monster the old friend who he's emailing is already a monster Mm -hmm. but he doesn't seem to want to be yeah so he takes his son to see this guy who he claims to be an old friend but we don't know if that's actually true yeah could be a college friend could not be could be just a how the internet works sometimes Yeah. yeah those darkest places on the web right and then the friend drugs the son and proceeds to do really weird and awful stuff to him. So the father sees what has happened to his own son and it's now his turn. He can't go through with totally metamorphosing. He's Mm -hmm. struggling and he takes his son and he escapes with him. Right. And confronts the bad guy, which is interesting because there is distinctly a good guy and a bad guy, but the good guy isn't even a good guy. True. He's struggling with these tendencies to unleash the monster that he is. Right, which is the tie-in to mental illness 
something's wrong with how you think, something's wrong with your brain, like you know that maybe your behavior isn't something that's normal. Well, there's one, a social contract that we all have with everybody else to be decent. Yeah. And we all really, in one way or the other, know what being decent is. Mm -hmm. Don't do this, don't do that. Do this, do that. We all know these things, almost inherently. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to physical, sexual, mental, emotional abuse from a parent in particular or uh, a guardian or an adult that the child, the young person would respect. The abuse leaves a very lasting impression on the victim. Yeah. And in some circumstances, it starts a cycle of abuse where that victim, when he or she gets older, will exhibit the same kind of abusive behavior to others, including their own children. Yeah. Now, I said earlier that it, it plays with our sympathies because obviously Bill Oberst's character is the absolute 100% villain. Mm -hmm. He's played very realistically, but also creepy. Yeah. Up until the point where he starts to change into a monster. Yeah. That's not realistic, but it's certainly gross. I'm saying realistic in the point of like, we don't have tentacle beasts right. in real life, except for in the ocean. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And none of them want our children. And uh, we don't even know which way he wants the child. When you see the child, he's got marks on his neck or something. Right, we don't really know it's, what it, exactly is it's, happening. It's still analogous to most likely sexual abuse on a child. So the father, on the other hand, at the, at the very beginning stages of the same type of monster. Yeah, they're the same being, basically. They're the same type of creature. Yeah. He's fighting the metamorphosis. He's obviously struggling against it. The other one considers it his own nature, yeah. while he considers it an obvious aberration, something that's wrong with him. He's trying to hold it in. He's trying to stop it from happening. And it doesn't really get into the uh, past history, except that they're old college friends, which, as you said, they may not be. I'm sort of leaning towards they're not, but whatever. Hmm. So here's the thing. Do we sympathize with the criminally insane? Yeah. People who are unremorseful for their actions. Now, the father character would be remorseful, but yeah. he's still a monster. As presented to us, he's still a monster, but he is remorseful and he's struggling to not be that way. And the other guy is the opposite. Right. Well, the father, he doesn't give in to the beast. However, we don't know if that's ultimately what's going to be the outcome every time. Whatever this is, is like swelling inside of him. It's also interesting about the, the nature. Is it only the nature of these two? men or is the story digging deeper and saying that all men have this tendency in them and I hope it's not all men have this tendency right I, I think maybe they're not saying all men I think maybe they're saying these two men I would hope so so I thought this little short film was pretty cool. Like I said, a lot better than I expected. Now, when I said cheap, yeah. I mean visually. And it is not cheap No, visually. it looks great. So when it started rolling, uh -huh. I'm like, well, okay, that looks pretty good. Yeah. Next scene, okay, that looks pretty good. Even there's a scene where they're both leaning on the wall and there's a door in the middle of them, which is, as a photo, not that compelling or interesting. In the film, it's absolutely fine. Yeah. There's tons of atmosphere with mm -hmm. lighting and, mm -hmm. and on-set haze mm -hmm. and all sorts of really good visual imagery. Right. And the special effects are pretty good, too. Yeah, they and really this, are. They are obviously really low-budget special effects, but you don't need to break your bank to make something as legitimate-looking as that. Yeah. Definitely. 
you see a lot of shorts that just look so unprofessional. You know, it's just um, low-budget directors just making something for their reel. Yeah, this thing is a legit short yeah. film that challenges the way you think. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of sympathetic monsters out there. Yeah. And they need to be helped to not be the monsters. And I think this is a movie that can actually encourage that conversation at least. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Now, how this leads into the next film is it's directly with the criminally insane aspect of it. Now, the next film is tied in as well with the Blair Witch Saga. Yeah. Now, I would say that this is probably the best Blair Witch sequel spin-off side story thing. I think so. And it's not because, full disclosure, it's not because I know the director, Ben Rock. I know him because I tweeted something about his movie, Alien Raiders, how I liked it, except the title was silly. And then he was like, yeah, thanks. And then we had conversations. And then I ended up doing some work for him graphic design-wise. And we've been buddies in a way ever since. And it was like seven years ago or something. So in full disclosure that, it's not because my loyalties lie with him. This Blair Witch tie-in is called The Burkittsville 7 and it came out just before Blair Witch 2. The Book of Shadows. Right. Let's go back, say, to the uh, fall of 1940. And that being a small town, everybody knew everybody, usually by most of them by their first name. But we had some kids disappearing in town. They were mostly between the ages of six and eight. It wasn't long after that, and Mr. Park came into town and walked in Mr. Smith or Mr. Stryker's store. I don't know which one, one of the general stores, who can or who was telling the story as to where he went. But he come in and he said the words that has become famous in Burkittville, is that I have finally finished. Well, they didn't know what he meant. And they asked him, he said, I've killed those children. He um, was charged and convicted with the uh, abduction of eight children and the murder of seven children in that area. All of a sudden, he became this monster, the demon of Burkittsville, as they referred to him at times. I don't think he ever thoroughly looked at the, the story. Which itself was directed by documentarian mm -hmm. Joe Berlinger. He also did the documentaries about the West Memphis Three. He's a legit documentarian. Yeah. And he goes and accepts the job by Lionsgate, by Artisan, to not do a documentary style film, but instead do a strange, possibly hidden gem, but most likely just an anomalous, weird movie, drama thing, thing. Yeah. and it's not documentary at all but what is is the burkittsville seven every piece of it seems legitimate mm -hmm. every single part of it from the actors from how the camera work is done from the reenactment footage mm -hmm. now i first heard of this movie when i worked at blockbuster i even owned it at one point on vhs this short was made for Showtime to be sort of a, a lead-in to the second Blair Witch movie, which was coming out shortly afterwards. Now the story is about the plight of an amateur archivist, film historian sort mm -hmm. of guy, named Chris Carrasco, who has a theory about... Rustin Parr? Who we all know from the Blair Witch mythology is the guy who gathered up the seven children in Burkittsville and killed them because the Blair Witch told him to. And he's the one that had the kids stand in the corner yeah. where we get that horrible, crazy, right. weird image and which is creeped out by it. Right. But this film presents something a little deeper, a little more sinister about that side of the story. The theory is that Rustin Parr was just a simpleton. Right. 
a dim-witted hermit who lived in the forest and was either coerced or not at all guilty. Mr. Parr came into town and walked in Mr. Smith and Mr. Stryker's door. But he come in and he said the words that had become famous in Burkittville, is that I finally finished. People interpreted that as he's finished killing kids because when they went back to his place, mm -hmm. they find the kids. But a priest in this documentary thinks that he's just saying he's like ready to die. His life right. is done. So this story poses that perhaps Rustin Parr wasn't, he was kind of a, what, a patsy? Is that the right word? Yeah, sort of a patsy. Now, if he was literally part of killing him as part of the theory yeah. is, then he was coerced into killing. He's not a patsy. Mm -hmm. He's still, so it would be possibly manslaughter if uh -huh. he's and not outright yeah. murder, depending on his mm -hmm. defense. But the crazier, more disturbing angle is that it was another kid. Yes. The eighth kid who got away, who was the mastermind behind the whole killings. That is the theory. Yeah. He came back and pointed his finger at Rustin Parr and said he did it, and he had me stand in the corner while he did it, and then he got away. So the kid's name is... Kyle Brody. Kyle Brody. And the documentary has interviews with his sister and others, town folk, a priest, the documentarian himself, the amateur documentarian, Chris, and various other people who examine whether or not Rustin Parr was capable of it mm -hmm. or Kyle Brody had anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. And we learn a lot about Kyle Brody. Yeah. And this is a major mental health segment. Yeah. This film was influenced by a few different things. First of all, the documentary style is inspired by the film The Thin Blue Line. An Errol Morris film about police corruption. And that actually ended up helping people getting certain corrupt officials in the can, like locked up in the clink. Sure. Also an influence is the 1963 film by Samuel Fuller, Shock Corridor. The motion picture screen opens the door to sights you've never seen before. Shock Corridor. The medical jungle doctors don't talk about. A labyrinth of twisted detours that both sexes stumble along. Shock Corridor. The incredibly realistic story that reveals the strange intrigues, the criminal impulses, the obsessions that explode into violence. Shock Corridor. Which we just recently watched. And that's about a reporter who goes undercover in an insane asylum. Yeah, to try to solve a murder. Of one of the inmates. Yes. And in doing so, he goes a bit batty himself. Right. It has to do with how we can drive ourselves insane. Or no, how our environment can drive us crazy. If we're around craziness. It rubs off on you? Yeah, quite possibly. But probably the biggest influence to the Burkittsville 7 is a documentary from 1967 called The Titicut Follies. Called the what? Titicut Follies. Titicut. Titicut. <laughs> it's so funny. Titicut. <laughs> Say it faster. Titicut Follies. Titicut Follies. Titicut Follies. It's about 81 minutes, 83 minutes of fly-on-the-wall footage inside a hospital for the criminally insane. And that actually has a little window into a, a part where a man claims that he shouldn't be there, that he was only sent there for observation for a short time, but they ended up keeping him there for a year and a half. And he constantly claims that he shouldn't 
shouldn't be there and that he is much like our character in shock corridor and going insane because of his surroundings not because he was insane in the first place right and that's actually very interesting i hear tell that he was let go oh really like out out okay yeah so hopefully that guy's if he's still alive not so broken anymore right the style of film that titicut follies is being so fly on the wall is directly influential on ben's little movie here it is little it's a 45 minute film of kyle brody's incarceration i suppose because he is for much of the film as an adult character uh-huh. in the uh insane asylum Right. Somewhere. And those portions are directly modeled after the Titicut Follies in a fake documentary called White Enamel. Which is Ben's version of Titicut Follies. Right, Folly. exactly. So Kyle is seen naked most of the time on all fours, jumping around, hooting and hollering like a batty person repeating strange things. Mm-hmm. Now what this has to do with the Blair Witch, there is no Blair Witch. Or is there? Right. It ties in with the Rustin Parr segment, but it says that Kyle Brody, as a charismatic little creep, problem child, pointed Rustin Parr to do the murders. Yeah. Or did the murders himself. And framed Rustin Parr. Let me go on a tangent for a second. You said that there is no Blair Witch. Yeah. After the Blair Witch Project came out, of course, talks of sequels were happening. The uh, the creators were trying to develop something that would like actually be a prequel right. to the Blair Witch Project. And how can you do a prequel that's set in the colonial time with a camera crew? <laughs> well, no, I mean, it, I mean it, that's what the problem was. Well, yeah, okay, but it would have been it would have been a, an actual film. It wouldn't have been documentary sure, okay. style. Ben says that the witch is a lot like what they had envisioned for that oh. con- like that concept. Oh, the movie The yeah, Witch. Yeah, yeah, the movie The Witch. So, and in that visualization of what the prequel could have been, Ben Rock wanted to kill off Ellie Kedward, the woman who is supposedly the Blair Witch. Sure. Okay. He wanted to kill her off and show that there's evil in them thar hills or them thar woods. Okay. <laughs> like, something is there that predates everything. So it's an ancient evil. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's a really cool idea, and I really wish that the sequel to The Blair Witch Project would not have been Book of Shadows and would have been this really cool idea. Well, I, you know, as I said, Book of Shadows is a weird anomaly and all that yeah. stuff. It's a satire on fandom, and so I appreciate it as that, and about how bonkers, crazy people can go just getting themselves ramped up and excited for things. So I appreciate Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows, for that alone, I don't necessarily appreciate the execution of it all. But the newest Blair Witch, which is still produced by the same folks, but Ben has nothing to do with it. He's also a fan of it. He likes the movie for what it does. I think it strays even farther away from the new witch backstory. The 2016 Blair Witch, which is a sequel, direct sequel, and it kind of ignores the second movie, to the first movie. It sidesteps all of the the weird witch stuff. Yeah. And while I appreciate it for what it is as it, in its own self, I don't think it's actually that... I, I really do think Burkittsville 7 is the best sequel, especially in comparison to 
the newest sequel. Right. It's the one that's most mysterious, and it feels like a real thing. Like, the first movie felt like a real thing. That's very true. You watch the Burkittsville 7, and it seems like you're watching, I, I don't know, like, I was thinking about Unsolved Mysteries or something. But that's still kind of hokey. I mean, that's not exactly the feeling, but it seems very real. I mean, like, all of it is so real. Like, the, the interviews. The actors. The hokey reenactment scenes, sort of. Which are just you know, quick intersplices. Right. They're not, yeah. Okay, so here's something I know about Ben. When he casts people in his projects, he picks the most legit people. They may not be names. They may not be faces, even though sometimes they are. Mm -hmm. But they're the most legit, natural speaker actors. Like, if there's going to be a stammer, yeah, that person's going to stammer, and he's going to do it, and it's going to seem like it's... Like, he, he's actually... Mm -hmm. a real person stammering mm -hmm. as opposed to a person performing mm -hmm. a stammer. And you know what? Also, the way Ben writes is instead of just sitting down and writing dialogue for an interview, like here's this scene which is an interview and I'm going to write down this dialogue and this is what this person is going to say and blah, blah, blah. What he does is he will first think about his characters, get a list of the characters he wants to include, make a mini bio backstory for each of the characters, and then go into this is how this person would respond to being questioned. And like he doesn't actually write much dialogue, he just like kind of like gives the actors, here's all this information about your character so you can just... You can speak like that Yeah, person. speak like this person. And that gives it total authenticity. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I, I actually wanted to make, uh, I wanted to be a director for a while. And I figured since I was going to do stuff low budget, I would try to find actors that would do that. Now, I never got that far, but that was my goal. I wrote a script, stupid zombie movie called Deadlands, but the dialogue was wimpy dialogue. And it only had the point that I wanted them to say. But had I the actors, I would have played on that, exactly what Ben did. I'm going to say, this is the point, but you say it how you're going to say it. Mm -hmm. But I never got to do that. Darn it. <laughs> so here we're saying, between the two movies, that the monsters in the first one represent people with mental illness. Mm -hmm. And the mental illness in question is at least physical abuse to children. Right. In Burkittsville 7, there's obviously the Titicut Follies element to it. Right. In which we're looking in on the mentally ill. Right. And our proposed actual killer, how his life has gone mm -hmm. since he was a child with all the hoopla and hubbub about the case. His life had spiraled into this strange, mixed up world that he lives in, which is, mm -hmm. he died in an insane asylum. Right. And horror movies typically use the trope of insanity. Right, yeah. Is this really happening to me? Right. Is it? Am I imagining it? Horror movies use that theme so often that it's obviously scary. And what makes it so scary to me is that it can affect all of us at any time. Like, we can go off the deep end and, like, not even realize it. Now, the horror trope a lot of times is the haunted asylum where they always portray the doctor or the staff as some kind of inherently like sadistic, evil sort of entity, I guess. But what the real life horror is, is how the inmates or the residents of the psychiatric wards, how they're treated by those staff people as less than human. Yeah, in horror movies, mental illness is used so much in very predictable ways 
there's always a haunted asylum and they portray the doctor or the staff as some kind of like uh, inherently sadistic evil like just mad scientist type of entity really but what the real life horror is mental illness can affect any one of us at any time so in Titicut Follies how the staff treats the inmates it's like they're less than human you have one attendant or guard I guess constantly annoying this one man just on purpose just to rile him up you have all of the guards just kind of constantly talking down to all the inmates like the way they give their orders is just like come here do this do this come here like they're not speaking to them in any sort of like human connection and the inmates are always naked which is very vulnerable well if you were to escape from an insane asylum and be naked you can't really escape there's just a naked man running around they don't want that so you're dehumanized yeah and what's so scary about it is like i said this could be us something could happen in our lives where we just snap and it's really frightening to think that someone would treat you in that way now what's interesting in shock corridor when a lot of the characters that our protagonist is interviewing trying to figure out who did the murder he finds moments where they become lucid and are their old self again and right they are what appears to be sane but just as quickly as when they pop out of it into their sane version of themselves they slip back in to the insane version of themselves right they get triggered by something they just don't hold it so that that sort of thing it's frightening yeah if you've had anybody close to you with uh, any kind of mental illness be it depression or uh, a kind of bipolar tendency borderline personality disorder stuff you'll notice that it's very difficult to understand how and why these things work work i say but how they function how it happens that they snap back in and out Mm -hmm. so that both of these films being the subjects that they tackle or are inspired by now i had seen burkittsville Mm -hmm. yeah a long time ago Right. And I just thought it was legit. I watched it again this time, and it's wholly legit. (laughs) Especially in comparison to the very latest Blair Witch incarnation. That doesn't quite feel real. This feels real. Yes. And Air, being the small, tiny little film that it is, packs a heck of a wallop. That's true. Confronts you as a viewer, shows you some icky goo and tentacles, but what the story is saying is just... It makes you think, at least. Yeah. So if you're interested in Fatal Pictures, you should go to their website, fatalpictures.com. Check out some of their other shorts that they've made. Also, if you're interested in Burkittsville 7 or other projects that Ben Rock has done, go to benrockonline.com. You'll see his latest stuff. Uh, He's got a web series that he developed with a friend of his. It's called 20 Seconds to Live. Also, Ben Rock was kind enough to answer some specific questions for me for this podcast, and I will make that available on our ouchmyego.com site. And we want to thank you guys for all of your support. You can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. Again, use your Google. Look up Vincent Price's laugh. Vincent Price, LOL, either. I mean, it'll come up either way. Yeah. And if you feel like it, you can throw us a few dimes at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash which is G-I-M-E-T-Z-C-O. Or you know what? Our little guy here, Andrew, he designs t-shirts. 
I'm not little. I'm six foot four. That's true. I'm a giant. Okay. My feet are like size 13. I have the biggest hands of anybody I know. Okay. I'm not little. Okay, our giant guy here, Andrew. That's design, more like Designs t-shirts. I do. At a lot of different places. Art prints, t-shirts, or coffee mug. Lots of things. So you can go to society6.com slash Jemetsko. You can go to redbubble.com. Yeah, and look up Jemetsko. Or T Public. Look up Jemetsko. Yeah. Again, that's G-I-M-E-T-Z-C-O. Get a cool shirt and help us live. <laughs> help us produce these podcasts. <laughs> On that note, everybody, good night. Thanks a lot for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Ouch My Ego. Visit OuchMyEgo.com. There's evil in them, there are hills.